Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Inside Baseball, a look at healthcare politics and policy in Washington, part of Hall Render's Practical Solutions podcast series. I'm John Williams, managing partner of Hall Render's Washington, D.C. office. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague and D.C. cohort, Andrew Coates. Andrew, how are you today? Doing good. Um, we've got a short we're on a Monday, but it's a short week Monday. So all things are good. Yeah. Probably doing better than our picks for the uh, election did the other week, right? Yeah, that was a rough night. <laughs> yeah. Um, as, as you all can tell, this is our post-election podcast where we're gonna we're gonna look at the results of the midterms and quite frankly, just how wrong we were uh, in our predictions uh, during our last podcast. Uh, I think in our in our defense, I will say that just about everyone uh, appears to have been wrong in their predictions. I mean, House Republicans had, I think it was two election night parties scheduled or hosted in Washington, D.C. on election night. And the House Democrats had none uh, planned. So uh, I think it's say, I think it's safe to say that that both sides um, really got it wrong. Um, I think what we'll do is that Andrew, I'll kick it off with a uh, with a look at the House results and uh, and let you take uh, the Senate. That work? That sounds great. All right. Well, as a refresher, uh, on the last podcast, we recommended that folks look uh, to the House races in uh, upstate New York, uh, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and the second, seventh, and tenth districts of Indi of Virginia uh, for indicators on how the night might go. Um, I think while the while Democrats held their own in the Rio Grande Valley uh, and Republicans won uh, pretty big in upstate New York, uh, the three House races that we identified in Virginia were really the best predictors of how things ended up. Uh, for those who listened to the last podcast, you'll recall that we said uh, Republicans winning uh, the second district of Virginia would mean that they are meeting expectations that evening because that is what is known as an R plus two district. The Cook Political Report does a what they call a partisan voter index. Um, and they rank things by Republicans plus two, Democrats plus two, uh, D plus two, R plus two, as we refer to it, uh, to show how a certain district leans one way or the other. So winning, um, Winning Virginia seven meant that they were exceeding expectations. That's a D plus one district. And then winning Virginia 10 would have meant that there really was a red wave going on because it was a D plus, it is a D plus six district. Um, in the end, they, they met expectations by winning Virginia two. Uh, they barely lost Virginia seven. That was a long night on Virginia seven. And they really didn't come that close um, in Virginia 10. So, um, while the Republicans did end up winning the House of Representatives, that, that's been officially called, they have reached the mark of 218 votes, which is or seats, which is what's necessary in order to, to control the process in the House of Representatives. Uh, it certainly went anywhere close to the 12 to 25 seat margin that most people expected. Uh, and it was nowhere near the 30 to 60 seat margin that some members of the Republican House leadership in Washington were predicting a few days before the election. So um, they, were, they were way off on that. Um, again, if you pay attention to this stuff in the news, you know that, that Republicans have reached that 218 number. 
there's still a number of races left to call uh, officially. So we don't know what kind of margin Republicans are necessarily gonna have in the House of Representatives. Uh, but I do think it's safe to say that we'll almost uh, certainly be either at or below the margin that House Democrats have had for almost the last two years, which is right at six seats. So gonna be a very narrow majority for Republicans. It's gonna make it very difficult for the Republican leadership to uh, control the members of their caucus, which is what always happens. Nancy Pelosi had a difficult time keeping either moderate Democrats on board or, or, or the progressive wing on board at times, although she did a phenomenal job of, of navigating that. And uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to have that same problem between the uh, very conservative members of his caucus and the moderate members of his caucus, uh, who are both going to have incredible amounts of leverage uh, come January when the new session of Congress kicks off. Andrew, you want to want to walk us through the Senate? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I'll just quickly add, you know, I think McCarthy's inheriting basically the same margin that Pelosi did. And to Pelosi's credit, uh, when there was a big vote there, uh, she got her party in line. And it will be very interesting to see if McCarthy has that same touch and is able to kind of keep the party in line on the big votes when he really needs um, all of his caucus to come in for him. Um, yeah, and, you know, and, and before you jump into the center real quick, I think it's probably worth hitting right now. Um, just because, it, it, again, if, if you pay attention to this stuff in the news, you'll know that Nancy Pelosi announced last week that she will not be running uh, for the speakership again. Uh, and the same with Steny Hoyer, who was the number two Democrat in the House. And uh, Jim Clyburn, who was the number three, is, is going to stick around in a leadership position, but it will not be as the number three Democrat in the House. So, um, yeah, to your point, Pelosi was uh, very adept at, at uh, her job. But we are going to have new Democratic leadership. Oh, uh, I guess a big void to... for them to fill. I mean, that's a lot of experience. <laughs> oh, that's over a hundred years of experience that they are losing with Pelosi. Well, what was, and what, what was this, the statistic that I saw that if you add up the age of Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn, you come out with you come up with a number that's actually higher than the age of the country itself. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that is institutional knowledge right there. Um, but I know from talking to a lot of Democratic members of the House, um, some of whom are, are, are anxious to get into a leadership position, that this is something that the, that the Democratic caucus has wanted for quite some time. So, but I know what will not be changing is over on the Senate side. So I'll let you, I'll let you take us into that. Yeah, no, the Senate, I think I had predicted a one to three um, Republican pickup in the Senate. And if you looked at polling, that was kind of in line with what the, the polls were saying, a lot of the polls were saying. Um, but it turns out it's going to be at best a, um, a zero gain. Um, and that still has, we're still waiting on Georgia. Obviously, they have the runoff um, between Warnock and, and Walker uh, the first Tuesday in December. So we'll see if Republicans win that, then it would be back to a 50 50 split with Democrats getting the the tiebreaker from the White House. You know, I think where, so, you know, it wasn't, this was built up this kind of election cycle to be a you know, Republican route and it wasn't even close. Um, I, I think Republicans where they really got hammered was on the expectations game. Um, you know, you looked at where the GDP was, you looked at the inflation, you looked at the stock market, all those were 
you know, trending in the wrong direction for the party in power and people thinking kind of what we saw in Florida where Republicans had a lot of success would be mirrored in the rest of the country. And it just wasn't. And I think, you know, you can look at the Dobbs decision. I think obviously in the, the Western states uh, that played a, a much bigger role than was anticipated. I think initially when the Supreme Court decision came down, people were thinking this would really hurt Republicans. And that kind of thought process died out as we got closer to election day. But once election day came, it was clear that you know Colorado, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, um, you saw a lot of voters come out um, as a protest um, against the Supreme Court decision. And I think you just saw some polling firms massively whiff on some of their predictions. Um, which, you know, obviously that's, it, it's a tricky business, but uh, there'll be some less credibil credibility there um, next election cycle for some of these firms uh, that we're predicting ours plus large margins. Um, but at the end of the day, the Senate's gonna be very tight. Uh, it's like the rest of the country. It's like the House, uh, razor thin margin for the Democrats. It's even like the governor's races, um, which I think now are 26, 24 in favor of Republicans. So across the country, you see these really thin margins. Um, in looking at the elections, the red states stayed red and basically the blue states stayed blue. Um, of the 28 incumbents on the ballot, um, all of them stayed. So for red, if you went, if the red state went for Trump in 20, uh, Republicans were 17 for 17 in those states. If the state went for um, Biden in 20, Democrats in the Senate were 15 out of 16. Um, so the only outlier being Wisconsin, where uh, Senator Johnson ran uh, or won in a very close margin. So um, historically speaking, this is something I saw somewhere and it was one of those stats I wish I picked up before the election and it made a lot of sense after. Um, for whatever reason, the Senate has a trend of staying under control of the party in the White House in the first president's midterm. Out of the last nine midterms for the first midterm of the president's term, um, the party in power has held the Senate. So Biden's gonna do so in 22. Trump did this in 18, where they picked up two to hold the Senate. Obama lost seats in 10, but still held the Senate. Democrats still held the Senate. W. Bush picked up four seats in 2002, held on to the Senate. Reagan in 82, held on to the Senate. Carter lost seats in 78, but Democrats still held the Senate. Johnson lost three seats in 66, Democrats still held the Senate. Kennedy picked up seats in 62, Democrats still held the Senate. The one outlier was 94 and Clinton, um, that was a huge red Republican year. Um, Democrats lost eight seats and they lost the Senate. So eight out of the last nine elections, uh, the Senate has stayed in the in whoever's in the White House's uh, party in their, in their control. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and to that point, the other thing was, is this was a bad map for Republicans to get to start off with, right? I mean, they were having to defend way more seats than, than Democrats had to in this cycle in the Senate. And so, you know, you heard me you know, a year and a half ago, saying that I didn't think that the Republicans were going to win the Senate because because I didn't think that they had a, a map that was in their favor. Now, I also bought into the momentum 
argument in the last month. And I was predicting, yeah, Republicans are going to pick up two, you know, one, whatever. I bought into that as well because it was the same thing that everybody was saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Republicans had a bad map and it, you know, history to your point actually, you know, played out the way that, you know, history was expected, you know. Republicans did themselves probably no favors by kind of electing in the primaries a lot of untested candidates oh, yeah. who had yeah. never run for office before. And when you're running for when you're running for Senate in a statewide race and you've never run for political office before, I mean that is a that's a very large mountain to climb. You are making thousands of decisions um, in that process. And when you have no experience to fall back on, um, that's that's a very tough go. And I think, you know, you look at the Trump factor for President Trump, he remains a force in primaries. Uh, and a lot of his decisions kind of kept a, a Trump favored candidate, um, allowed them to, to win the primary. But thus far, um, we've seen Trump's candidates really struggle in general elections. So, yeah. and, and that came true uh, last Tuesday. Yeah, you know, a, a couple of things. One, I, to, on the election side of it, uh, one of the interesting things that I've been watching is this issue with the congressional generic ballot uh, versus the popular vote, right? The congressional, the generic congressional ballot basically looks at just sort of an overall number of, would you prefer a Republican Congress or a Democratic Congress? And it sort of tracks with the popular vote and I think that the final generic congressional ballot was right at about four to four and a half percent in favor of Republicans. Um, it's fascinating that the popular vote, Republicans are winning the popular vote in the midterms and they're doing it by about four to four and a half percent. So um, actually the results will end up actually tracking the congressional ballot, I think pretty much spot on. Which, which is kind of interesting in itself. To go back to a point that you made about the, the, the split and the, and the issue with the, with the Warnock-Walker race and whether it means a 50-50 split or a 51-49 split, it's important, and this is serious inside baseball stuff, right? This is the title of our podcast, but um, one of the impacts that that's gonna have, whether it's 50-50 or 51-49, is just beyond Vice President Harris breaking ties in a 50-50 Senate. Uh, in a 50-50 Senate, you have equal representation on committees. Um, and that plays into a lot of inside baseball stuff with discharge petitions and a whole a host of other procedural moves that if it's a 51-49 um, split, then you, have, then you don't have the power sharing dynamics that go along with a 50-50 Senate. And so you will have more Democrats on committees than you will than Republicans. And this also plays into things like how, how many people you need to have a quorum, uh, you know, how many to, in order to hold votes and how many absences you have. And if a Senator gets sick and what that does is you've got a one, a one vote safety cushion now, um, if you get 4140, you know, 5149 versus whether you have 5050. So um, there is some, some importance to, to what's gonna happen. Uh, with the outcome of that Georgia runoff that goes just beyond um, who's going to control the Senate. 
And that's why the people of Georgia are going to see continue to see Senate ads uh, for the next month leading up to the election just about every cycle. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Congress's business is not completely finished. Yeah, we've had the we've had the election now. Um, and there's some things left to play out in terms of margins, right, in Georgia. Uh, but from a legislative perspective, Congress does have uh, unfinished uh, business to deal with before the end of the year. Um, lawmakers returned last week to kick off what is known as the lame duck session of Congress, which is that period that runs between the election and when Congress officially ends its work for the year. And in this case would be the, the complete end of the 117th Congress. I know that the most pressing issue right now on Congress's plate is funding the federal government for the rest of fiscal year 2023. And I say for the rest because the government has been funded and operating uh, under what we call a continuing resolution or a CR that runs uh, from the end of fiscal year 2022, so September 30th of this year until December the 16th of this year. So Congress is going to address all of the outstanding issues that it intends, and I use that word intentionally, uh, to address through an omnibus bill, which is one of these massive 2,000 plus page bills that covers you know, a whole variety of different issues, including, including healthcare. So the first thing that they're gonna put into this omnibus bill is going to be how, to, how they're gonna fund the federal government for the remainder of FY 2023. Uh, and we expect it to last that long. Um, I don't think they're going to come up with anything shorter than a full fiscal year's worth of funding uh, in that bill. We had heard rumors that they were going to possibly put the debt ceiling in the omnibus uh, in order to take that off the table so it can't become a political hot potato for next year. Um, but it looks like that's not going to make it into the omnibus. But um, there are a lot of health care issues that need to still be addressed. And the omnibus is going to be the vehicle, as we call it by which their Congress is gonna to try to address that at the end of the year. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff flying around. Andrew, jump in here. What are, what are you hearing as far as healthcare issues that might make it into the omnibus? Yeah, well, as you noted, first off, time is running short. Today is the Monday before Thanksgiving. Congress will be out this week and they return next week. And that will give them three weeks uh, to come up with a end of the year uh, omnibus before they turn the lights out for this Congress. And three weeks moves very quickly. So you're going to see measures they get passed and, and eventually signed into law are going to be measures that have full bipartisan support and there's not a lot of disagreement on. And some of the items that need to get done um, from a healthcare perspective during lame duck include extension of the statutory 4% sequester cut that would impact Medicare uh, starting on January 1, 2023. We're gonna see extension of the Medicare Dependent Hospital Program, the low volume hospital adjustment and ground ambulance add-on payment. Another item likely to be added is language to avert a fourth round of Medicare cuts to lab services that also is set to take effect on January 1, 2023. And last on you know, a list, if you're making it to be included, that's likely to be included is reauthorization of the user fees for the FDA programs. But without the policy riders, uh, if you recall, this, the, there have been, the House has passed its own FDA user fee agreement. The Senate has passed an agreement through the, through the health committee. 
Uh, there are a number of policy riders uh, that need to be cleared. Um, we'll see which ones make it and which ones do not. There's also a number of items that could go. Um, it could be included in an omnibus package. I'd say the first on that list is provision to avert the looming 4.5% pay cut to Medicare physicians that kick in January 1, 2023. You look at telehealth, um, extension of the um, pandemic-related telehealth waivers from 151 days to two years after the PHE ends could also be included, as well as the provision that extends a high deductible health plan's ability to pay for telehealth services. And then there's a lot of, there's a number of other um, provisions that could get included. John, I know one that you've been working on deals with the Stark Law. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, so just to jump back real quick, uh, I know that uh, Larry Bouchon, uh, Republican from Indiana, and Amy Barrow from California, Democrat, have introduced legislation to deal with that 4.5% physician pay cut. Um, they introduced that in the last month or so, uh, and I know they are working really hard uh, to get that included uh, into the omnibus as well. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether or not, you know, the, 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 the 4% overall pay-go cut makes it, or they both make it. Um, not everything's going to make it, right? So they're going to have to pick and choose because all this stuff is going to have to be paid for somehow. And, uh, we'll have to, to see how that plays out. But yeah, to your point, there's the other thing that we're hearing could make it into the omnibus is mental health legislation. Um, there is a House passed bill called Restoring Hope for Mental Health and Well-Being Act of 2022 um, that did pass the House, as I said, with bipartisan support. Uh, that could end up going in to the to the omnibus bill. There's a number of bills introduced in the Senate to deal with mental health um, that also could be included. Uh, in the omnibus. One of those is uh, the Protecting Our Physicians Act, which is something that uh, Hall Render proposed to lawmakers that would create a new exception to the Stark Law for physician wellness programs. So that's something that we're, we're monitoring uh, pretty closely um, and, and hopeful that that could be included. There's a number of other things too, I think that are, I mean, look, this is, the omnibus is what we refer to as a Christmas tree in Washington. Um, Everybody wants to get their ornament hung on the Christmas tree uh, before Christmas is over. Um, and what you try to avoid is hanging too many ornaments on it such that the Christmas tree collapses. But a lot of folks are, beginning, are going to be trying to get their issue, their bill included, especially now that we're gonna have a situation where we're gonna have a change of power in the house. So a lot of Democrats are gonna be looking to use the lame duck as a chance to get their bills through, knowing that they're probably not gonna have a very good chance come next year. So other things that we hear are being included in the negotiations, but we think stand a long shot of being included is Cures 2.0. That's one that uh, Diana DeGette and Fred Upton have been working on. There is a, a provision that would correct the, correct the definition of uh, Medicaid shortfall for purposes of calculating uh, the limit on dish payments. Uh, that is important to a number of states around the country. Um, not quite certain that's going to make it. There's talk of including a cap on insulin. That's been discussed a lot over the last two years. Not sure that makes it. I know the administration is asking for more COVID-19 funding, uh, more money for monkeypox. Uh, that's probably not going to make it. Uh, 
I know that some folks are calling for more money to go into the provider relief fund. I don't see that happening. Um, interestingly, there's also a, a piece of legislation uh, that would reform prior authorization in the Medicare Advantage space. Uh, there's a bill that passed the House earlier this year with overwhelming bipartisan support. However, it did so before there was a cost estimate to the federal government uh, for passing the bill or turning the bill into law. And it's like 16 billion over 10 years. So um, don't expect that to make the final cut now that um, now that there, there's a price tag on it because the bipartisan support completely dropped off for that. Um, anything else I'm missing, Andrew? Anything else? I'm pretty comprehensive list there. Yeah, stuff. it's a pretty comprehensive list. I'm sure there are other things. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they always do. There's always stuff. There's going to be stuff that right. we were thinking about that's going to pop up. I mean, from a timing perspective, what do you think? I don't think there's going to be any appetite to get anything done until the runoff's over in Georgia on the 6th. I mean, considering this is this week's Thanksgiving, they come back next week. I mean, you're almost to the 6th anyway, right? I think that's right. I think, you know, you see next week members come back in town and that's where they're going to be going to the chairman of the committees and leadership saying, you know, this is my priority um, and I want to see this this moved or, um, and, and that's kind of committees will take it from there and kind of build the pecking list. Yeah, well, Hopefully our, our, our forecast on what gets included in the Omni is a bit better than our forecast for the elections, <laughs> the elections were. But I think with that, we'll wrap up this edition of Inside Baseball. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next month uh, to do a rundown of what happened to our lame duck session. Talk a little bit about uh, what to expect in the 118th Congress, which kicks off the first week of January. As always, if you'd like more information about what Andrew and I do or how we provide federal advocacy services to our clients, please visit our website at hallrender.com or you can reach out to me at jwilliams at hallrender.com or Andrew at acopes at hallrender.com. And as always, one last disclaimer, please remember the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and certainly do not constitute legal advice. So long, everybody. <laughs>